Good morning, Harmony. Before we get to the message today, uh, I have a statement that our executive elder team has asked me to read. It reads as follows. Dear Harmony family, uh, it is with heavy hearts that we feel the need to communicate with you regarding the mention of our church in the media this week. Well, this situation is an ongoing legal matter, and therefore what we can communicate is limited. Uh, we do want to clarify uh, a few things. First, contrary to what has been reported, the individual who has been criminally charged is not a ministry leader at Harmony and was not involved in ministry to children or teenagers when the alleged crime uh, took place. Second, immediately after learning of the allegations, we took appropriate action, which included but was not limited to prohibiting the accused individual from attending activities at all of our campuses. Third, we have and will continue to fully cooperate with the appropriate authorities as they seek to fulfill their God-given responsibility to investigate the situation and ultimately enforce justice. Fourth, we would ask that you understand that at this time, we will not be able to answer all of the questions you may have. We would also ask that you please refrain from spreading information about this matter that you have not personally witnessed. Finally, uh, we are praying for God's mercy and grace in these days, and that for his glory, he will bring healing and hope to those impacted by the situation. Sincerely, the Harmony Bible Church Executive Elder Team. So, on that note, we please pray with me. Uh, Father, we um, grieve today, and uh, quite honestly, we, we moan, and we uh, would ask you how long, how long until you're going to um, fulfill your promise to come and to heal and to mend and to uh, restore things. Lord, we are desperately in need uh, of your mercy and grace. At these times, it just becomes uh, maybe more real to us, but the reality is, is that we're in desperate need of it every single second of every single day. And yet, we, we do cry out, honestly, and, and we want to say, please come, Lord Jesus. Please bring us to the day where we don't have to read statements like this and um, where we don't have situations like this happening and occurring. But at the same time, we do hope in you and we hope because you know that you're, uh, we know that you're not aloof to our suffering, but that you care about it very deeply, that when we hurt, you hurt. And we need to look no further than the cross to, to see that. To see that you were willing to enter into our suffering and you were actually willing to take it on yourself. We thank you and we praise you for doing that. And we pray that in that truth, we may find hope today. We may find hope that our sin has been paid for, that our eternity is secure, and that one day that you are coming back and that you've told us it's going to be soon. So give us faith to hold on till then, to live for you, to seek you and everything. We pray now as we turn to your word that your spirit will come and will move and will work and will save and will sanctify and bring us good today because we desperately need it for your sake. Amen. 
All right, today we're once again going to be in Genesis 2, where we're going to take a look at how God's designed marriage to be complementary. And as I said last week, by complementary, I don't mean that God's designed marriage to be a relationship in which a man and a woman just give one another compliments all the time. Right now, again, if you do that, I really do compliment you for that. That's a great, great thing. But by complementary, I'm talking about where a man and a woman fill equally important but distinct and corresponding roles. So I want to be clear on this uh, from the beginning. Uh, the Bible reveals that men and women uh, have equal value, worth, dignity, but that within marriage, God's design is for them to play different and complementary roles. Uh, I know today that we have a hard time believing uh, that two people can have different roles and still be equal. Uh, but as Christians, we need to look no further than the Trinity to see that this can be true. Uh, within the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal. They're all fully God. And yet within the Godhead, they have distinct roles and functions. So, so the Father and the Son are equal, and the Holy Spirit is equal with them both, but they all have um, complementary roles, and so it is within marriage. Husbands and wives are, are equal, all right? They're equal, but God's designed them to fill different and complementary roles. Now, uh, before we look at our text, I, I want to stress how important um, understanding the complementary uh, design of marriage is both for marrieds and for unmarrieds. If you're married, um, it's important that we understand this because quite simply, you can't fully flourish without understanding and applying the complementary nature of marriage. Now, it's possible that, that you really don't know, don't understand God's complementary design, and your marriage is still flourishing um, some way and somehow, all right? Uh, but that's because even a blind squirrel finds a nut once in a while, okay? <laughs> but, but here's what I can tell you. I, I can tell you that if you will grab hold of how God's designed marriage to be and that you will apply it to your marriage, it will flourish like never before. If you're unmarried, on the other hand, let me give two reasons why what we're going to talk about this morning is really important for you to understand. One, you very well may be married one day. Uh, and quite honestly, what we're going to talk about over the next few minutes could make all the difference in whether or not your future marriage flourishes. Then two... If you're going to flourish as a single person, you need to have a robust understanding of the gospel, and that's what marriage is ultimately about. It's about giving us a picture, an illustration of the gospel. By the way, uh, let me clear, clearly state something that I just alluded to. You, you don't have to be married in order to flourish. In fact, as we'll see later in this series, according to the Apostle Paul, in some ways, singles have more opportunities for flourishing than married people do. Sometimes we get confused about this in the church, you, you know, where we think that in order to be fully happy and satisfied, you have to be married, like marriage is the end goal for a Christian. But that's a misnomer because we know that to be fully happy and satisfied means that you have to become like Jesus, all right? That, that really the goal of a Christian is not to get married 
The goal of a Christian, okay, is to be made in the image of their Savior, and the way that that happens is through understanding and applying the gospel, whether you're married or not. So with that said, let's read our text, which is once again, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Here's what God's word says. Follow as I read. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, like last week, we're going to focus on one verse in this text. This week, it's going to be verse 18. Verse 18 is a verse that really sticks out like a sore thumb in Genesis 1 and 2. And that's because seven times in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God saying that something is good or very good. And then there's one time where we see him saying that there's something that is not good. And that, of course, is here in verse 18. So we've got to ask, what's not good? What does God say is not good? And what God says is not good is that man is, help me here, man is a what? I feel like I'm alone right now here, all right? It's not good that man is alone. Now, Adam's aloneness means that he's lacking in two things. He's missing two things. He's missing companionship and he's missing strength. Companionship and strength. Let's talk about each of these deficiencies. That's actually what the phrase not good means. It means that there is a significant deficiency. Now, he's deficient, again, in companionship and in strength. So let's talk about companionship. According to chapter 1. Adam has been created in God's image. And to be made in God's image means to be like him. And being like him means that companionship is absolutely central to being human. Let's go back to the Trinity again. The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed in an internal relationship of really of love and of fellowship. From all time and for all time, they are in this companionship relationship or fellowship relationship. And, and therefore, being made in God's image means that Adam, and of course us as well, all were made for fellowship. We were made for companionship. Maybe you could put it this way. Adam has a need for companionship because he's been made by a God who is always and will always experience that companionship within himself. Now, I want to talk uh, for a few minutes about what this means for marriage, Okay, and also about what it means for, for, for dating. All right? For marriage, it means that God has given us a spouse to be our closest friend. Re repeatedly in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew word for best friend is used to describe one's 
spouse. So your spouse is your companion, your best friend. At least that's how God's designed it to be. So, and this ties in with what we talked about last week. This means that husbands and wives should make their relationship their most important human relationship by far. It means that couples should prioritize not only sexual oneness, but emotional, spiritual, and overall relational oneness as well. And here's why this matters, married couples, all right? Here's why this matters. It matters because a deep friendship between husbands and wives is necessary if a marriage is going to flourish. If your marriage is going to flourish, you have to pursue a deep, deep friendship with one another, which leads to this. Let's talk about dating for a second. All right, dating for a second. And young people, I, I really, really hope that you will listen to me here. All right. The fact that husbands and wives should be best friends means that you should prioritize friendship over physical attraction when considering who you're going to date and ultimately who you're going to marry. Now, I'm not suggesting, by the way, that you date people that you are unattracted to. That's probably not a good idea, okay? But what I am trying to tell you is that physical attraction cannot sustain a flourishing marriage. Only a deep friendship can. All right? Physical attraction is only going to get you so far. Now, some of you are not going to like this, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyways. I'm, I'm always tempted um, when I'm doing a wedding, okay, uh, during the wedding to actually say to the, the, the bride or the groom that this is as good as it's going to get from a physical attraction standpoint, all right? <laughs> like, it's all downhill from here. And you know why you're laughing right now? Because it's true. Okay? Some couples are kissing right now. trying to say, no, 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 it's not true. All right. But, but honestly, I mean, does a bride ever spend as much time on her appearance as she does on her wedding day? No. And we know that the grooms definitely do not, right? I mean, it's only the day after the honeymoon that the dad bod starts, right? For I mean, just for, for all time. So, so... It's just, so the point is this, and this, this is, by the way, this is one of the reasons why relationships, okay, are not lasting very long in our culture, is because they're so often, okay, primarily built on this physical, romantic kind of attraction, and while that certainly is part of a relationship, it should be part of marriage, a good part of marriage, it can't sustain a marriage in the long run. And therefore, my strong encouragement to you is to only date people you have things in common with. Seriously date only people who you are developing a significant friendship with. And for sure, only marry someone who has become your best friend and whom you are attracted to in every way. Yes, physically, but also emotionally and in particularly spiritually as well. In fact, this is a good time uh, for me once again to bring out uh, God's word here on the issue of whom we should marry. 
We should only marry someone who is a believer. Why? Well, because first of all, God says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. But, but also, because if we marry someone who is on a different uh, plane or, or headed in a different direction than we are spiritually, there is absolutely no way that our marriage can flourish. So I just want to tell you this, all right? If you marry someone who is not a believer from the get-go, your marriage is going to struggle. It's going to struggle because you're headed in a different direction. Only marry someone who is headed in the same direction that you are spiritually. So God creates Eve to address Adam's lack of companionship, but he also creates her to address his lack of strength. Now, by lack of strength, I don't mean to imply that Adam was weak because that certainly was not the case at all. And in fact, um, in many ways, Adam was probably the strongest man um, who has ever lived, um, not only physically, but pretty much in every other way as well. However, by lack of strength, I do mean that Adam was not equipped with everything he needed to accomplish the massive task that God had given him. Now, if we were to go back to verse 15 of Genesis 2, we would see uh, that God puts Adam in the Garden of Eden and it says to work it and to keep it. So, so God creates this um, incredible world. With all kinds of animals, okay, all kinds of plants, all kinds of everything, all right? And, and then he creates Adam, and he puts Adam in charge of it. He says, you're supposed to, to steward this. You're supposed to work it. You're supposed to keep it, all right? We see Adam here, even in the text we read, he, he's naming the different animals. So he's got this huge job to do. But then as Adam begins to carry out this job, God sees him and he says, you know, we've got a problem here. This, this, this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to help this guy. He's not equipped with everything that he needs to accomplish the mission I've given him. And so I'm going to make for him a wife, a helper. Now let's talk about the word helper here. I'm going to make a helper fit for him. There's a lot of misunderstanding about this word helper. But it has much more significant than, significance than we probably realize. All right. What it means is that God didn't create Eve to give Adam just a little assistance, to kind of be uh, his little helper like the elves are to Santa Claus. All right. In fact, the word helper here is most often used in the Old Testament to actually refer to God himself and specifically to how God was Israel's helper. So just one example here, all right? There are all kinds of examples you could give. Psalm 54, 4 says this, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. We see the word helper refer to a wife in Genesis 2, but in much of the rest of the Old Testament, we see it actually referring to God himself. What's more... The term is also used of military aid, like reinforcements, without which a battle could not be won. Therefore, a helper is not a weak counterpart, is not just kind of an assistant, but rather someone who by their strength makes up what is lacking in someone else. Guys, by the way, this should be rather humbling for us here, because the deficiency in Genesis 2 actually isn't in the, the woman, it's in the man. The man is the one who is lacking and needs the help, the strong help of another. So here's what God is telling us by calling a wife a helper. To quote one commentator, a wife is an indispensable partner required to achieve the divine commission. 
The woman makes it possible for the man to achieve the blessing that he otherwise could not achieve on his own. The woman is the provision of the divine help for the man so that God will bless them as they achieve the mandate. Now, let me give you a personal illustration here that hopefully will we'll bring this home. God has a, uh, a big calling on my life. A big, big calling on my life. Now, that doesn't make me unique because God has a big calling on all of our lives. But one of the things I want all of us to get today is that God has a big calling on our lives. He has created each and every one of us for a big, big purpose. But God also knew that when he created me that, that I wasn't going to be equipped with everything that I needed to be able to accomplish that task, that purpose for which he had created me. And that's why he brought my wife, Eva, into my life so that through her talents and her abilities and her personality and her passion, together, okay, we would have what we need to be able to accomplish the mission that God had called us to. I need her and her specifically, her ability to speak actually is what I really need. <laughs> um, I need her differences where she's different from me to help me to accomplish what God has called me to accomplish. We talk, you know, even more specifically about becoming the man that God wants me to become. If I'm going to become the man that God's want me to become, I, 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 need, I need her and her differences to help me to become that. Now, you might be well, like, she's not doing a very good job, all right? But I just have to tell you, that's because you didn't know me 15 or 20 years ago. If you knew me back when we got married, you would say, she is just knocking the ball out of the park, all right? Doesn't have a whole lot to work with, so she's doing a great job. But that's true really for every one of us, whether we are married or not. You see, that's one of the reasons why the church is so important, in particular, like for, for singles. Singles need people who are the other gender, okay, to help them become who God would want them to become. We all need one another, whether we're married or single. Men need women and women need men so that by our differences, okay, we can help one another to accomplish this great task that God has given us. I'll talk more about what that task is in a minute. There's one other word, though, that we first need to look at in verse 18, and that's the word fit. God says that Eve is a helper fit for Adam. The word for fit is an interesting one and at first is a confusing one. It literally means like opposite. God is saying that Eve is like opposite to Adam. This means that Eve is of the same substance as Adam, but that she is opposite to him and that she corresponds to him. So maybe you think of two puzzle pieces that fit together. Two puzzle pieces that will, of course, be of the same substance, all right? But they are opposite one another in a way that allows them to fit together and complement one another. They are alike, but they're different in a way that allows them to fit together. Adam actually describes this like oppositeness in verse 23. Look at it again, all right? So, so here's what's going on, just a reminder here. That God says it's not good for man to be alone. So he puts Adam to sleep, takes out his rib, forms Eve from that rib, all right? Wakes Adam up, brings Eve to him. And here's how Adam responds. He says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. 
She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Note that Adam both affirms that Eve is like him, right? She, she, she has bones like he has bones. She has flesh like he has flesh, all right? But that she is different from him. He doesn't call her a man. He calls her a woman. When Adam sees Eve, he, he notes that there is likeness there, but he also sees that there are some very agreeable differences. Do you need me to describe what those are here today, right? All right, women and men are alike, but they're also different, and it's good that they're different because their differences are meant to complement one another. So there are at least two important observations to make at this point. One, and we're going to talk a lot more about this in, in a couple of weeks, this is one of the reasons why the Bible always prohibits homosexual behavior, always. Two men and, or two women aren't like opposite, they are like-like, and therefore aren't capable of complementing one another like a man and a woman are. Two, men and women aren't the same, and again, I've said this before, I'm going to keep saying it, they aren't the same, and that's a good thing because they need one another's differences. They need the complementary, complementarity of the other. Now let's talk practically about how husbands and wives are to carry out their complementarity. Here in Genesis 2, as well as in the New Testament passage on marriage, we find that God has given husbands the role of leadership and wives the role of supporting and helping in that leadership. So, so just to be clear, in marriage, God's design is for husbands to lead the relationship and he's designed wives to support and to help him in his leadership. Now, I probably don't need to point out to you that this is pretty controversial today, right? There are a lot of people, a lot of churches even, who would disagree with the statement that I have just made with what I am presenting here today. But I want to show you how we know that this actually is God's design. There are at least five reasons. Number one, we know it because Adam was created first. Two, Eve was created for Adam. Three, Eve was created from Adam. Four, Adam was given the authority to name Eve. And five, the New Testament passages on marriage repeatedly point back to Genesis 2 when they affirm that the husband is the head or leader in the relationship and that the wife is to support and help him in his leadership. So one of the um, arguments that people would make against what I am presenting today is, you know, those New Testament passage, those were all culturally based. Okay, when Paul is talking... Uh, to the church of Corinth, he's talking to the church at Ephesus, or he's talking uh, to the church of Colossae. Um, he's just talking about that time and that place and what's going on there, okay? He's not giving universal teaching for all time. The problem with that, however, is that uh, in those passages, the 1 Corinthians passage and the Ephesians 5 passage in particular, Paul grounds his teaching in Genesis chapter 2. He points back and he says, here's what marriage is supposed to be, here's how it's supposed to function, and the reason that it's supposed to function that way is because that's how God designed and created it to be. It's not something, Paul says, it's not something I'm coming up with, it's not something that's just for here, this is for now and for all time, and that's because that's God's created design and created order. And so honestly, 
I don't believe there's any way to take the Bible at its word and to get around that this is what it tells us about God's design for marriage. However, since there is a lot of confusion and really misunderstanding about how this design actually should be applied, let's dig in a little deeper here, all right? God desires a husband to take the lead in marriage, but to do so in a sacrificial way, to do so as a servant leader, to do so by laying down his life for his wife the way that Jesus laid down his life for him. So uh, let's go back to Ephesians 5, which we just preached through a couple months ago, but, but let me remind you, all right? In Ephesians 5, Paul begins by telling wives uh, to submit to their husbands, to follow their husband's leadership because uh, the husband is the head or the leader of the wife, like Christ, okay, is the leader of, of the man, the leader really of, of the, the church as well, all right? And then he goes on to say, husbands carry out your leadership by loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church. So that for a husband to be the leader means that he is to be the lead servant, the lead sacrificer, the one who repeatedly, continuously lays down his wife for his life, his wife. Therefore, to be the leader in marriage doesn't mean to be the boss. It doesn't mean to be the one who's in charge. It doesn't mean to be the one who gets to tell everybody else what to do. What it means is to put your life on the line every single moment of every single day for your wife and for your family. That's what it means to be the leader. This is a good time. Let Let me go back here as well. It also means, particularly in view here in Genesis 2, it means to be the one who leads in the relationship in a way to understand what God's purpose, what God's mission is for your marriage and to work along with the wife to fulfill that purpose, that mission. This is a good time uh, to point out that if our marriages are going to flourish, they have to be going somewhere. Let me say that again. If our marriages are going to flourish, they they have to be going somewhere. They have to to have a purpose. Marriage is not an end in and of itself. Marriage is for a purpose. And, And we actually see here in Genesis 2 that the purpose is to uh, bless the rest of creation in a way that brings honor and glory to the Lord. We actually can see this in Genesis 1 even clearer. In Genesis 1, God says, hey, you're going to be fruitful and multiply, and you're going to fill the world, and you are going to subdue it. And you're going to do so in a way that reflects my image in you that brings honor and glory to me. You see, one of the biggest problems of Christian marriage is is that there's no mission the couple is working on together. But we really shouldn't miss this in Genesis 1 and 2. God gives Adam a mission, and then he creates Eve to help Adam accomplish that mission. And you know what? This really is or should be the mission of every Christian couple. See, I'm I'm really helping you out here. You, You don't really have to go and figure out what your mission is. It's already laid out for you here. God's created, friends, every single one of us for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to bless the world and to bring glory to him. Here's how we say it at Harmony Bible Church. We exist, okay, to bring glory to God by being disciples and making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And if you're married, okay, your mission is to together fulfill and carry that out. 
to be disciples and to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It begins, by the way, in your home with your kids, and then it should extend out to the church and to the world. And if you want your marriage to flourish, you have to get on mission together. So husbands, being a leader means partnering with your wife to see this accomplished. And so if you're not already, start taking the lead and pursuing this mission with your wife today. Now wives, at the same time, God desires a wife to affirm her husband's leadership and to help him carry it out according to her gifts. She is to use her gifts to encourage, support, and help her husband lead as God would have him to. This will look different for every wife, but at the bottom line, it means seriously considering where and how she can best come alongside her husband and be his strong helper as together the two pursue God's mission for their marriage. Now, here's a theory that I have. All right. I, I don't know if it's uh, actually the case or not, but I, I do believe that it's true. It's my theory that almost every Christian wife wants her husband to lead. She has that desire in her heart. She, she wants that. And so my encouragement to you ladies is, is that if that should be your desire, and if it is your desire then you should consider how you can use the gifts that God has given you, who he has made you to be, to come alongside your husband and to encourage him, to, to, to cheerlead for him, to support him, and to help him be the godly leader that you and God want him to be. How do you do that? How do you do that? Take your gifts Take your talents, take your abilities, come alongside him so that the two of you can pursue God's mission together. Now, I want to finish today by talking about why we struggle so much with the complementary nature of God's design for marriage. Why we struggle to accept it and why we struggle to carry it out. So here's what I know. I know that there'll be quite a few people who maybe disagree with what I presented today as the complementary design. But even if you don't disagree with it, here's what you can, you can say. You definitely will struggle to carry it out. And I want to talk about why that is the case, why we struggle to accept it and why we struggle to carry it out. And the reason that we do is found in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we're not actually going to look at the text, but I, I do want to walk through it with you. I want to tell you the story. Here, here's what we find in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan, in the form of a serpent, slithers into the Garden of Eden, and he approaches Eve. Now, now think about that for a second. Why does Adam approach, or I'm sorry, why does Satan approach Eve instead of Adam? It's because he's attacking God's created order from the beginning. Right away, his first attack is against God's created order, against God's design. And what is Adam doing as the serpent attacks Eve? We know from the text he's actually standing right there. He's watching this all go down. Instead of assuming the leadership that God had given him, stepping in, protecting his wife, Adam does nothing, and Eve listens to the serpent, and then Adam listens to Eve, and unfortunately and tragically, nobody listens to God. The order gets all reversed, and all of a sudden, sin enters into the world, and along with sin 
some very, very devastating consequences. In verses 16 and 17 of Genesis chapter 3, we're told that these consequences include men now being bent to, uh, towards dominating women and women being bent towards um, 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 manipulating their husbands and opposing their leadership. Let me just point that out, bring that out clear here. What we actually see because of sin entering into the world is now men are no longer bent towards loving their wives and caring for them, okay, and sacrificing for them. They're bent towards actually dominating them. And women, they're no longer bent towards supporting and encouraging their husbands and helping them in their leadership. They're bent towards manipulating their husbands and to opposing their leadership. As one author points out, now husbands and wives' differences no longer complement one another, but rather they serve as an occasion for oppression and exploitation. What, what, those differences that we talked about before, the differences that were good, that helped us to complement one another, those differences now, we use them to oppress and to exploit one another. And this is why we struggle not only affirm God's design for marriage, but more importantly, to carry it out. So I'm going to be blunt with you now. All right? Men, if we struggle with God's complementary design for marriage, it's because of sin. It's because sin has bent us either towards being passive or towards being domineering, or perhaps even to both. Me, personally, I'm bent to both. Some days I can be passive, some days I can be domineering, and you don't know which one you're going to get. Okay? I don't know which one you're going to get. That's, just, that's true. That's what sin has done to me. Honestly, I think that's what sin has done to every man. Women, if you struggle with God's complementary design for marriage, it's because of sin. It's because of sin of others, of course, of how husbands have at many times dominated their wives. But it's also because sin has bent you towards being manipulative and rebellious. Sin has bent you just like it has bent men. So you see, Genesis 3 shows us the problem isn't with God's design, it's with us. Right, so, so if we, um, here's what we, we tend to do. We, we tend to feel or think today that if we feel something, it must be good and it must be right. But the reality is, is because of sin, what we feel and what we think is right should not be trusted. What we feel and what we think is most often going to lead us the wrong way. The heart is desperately wicked, okay? And so it's going to lead us in the wrong direction. That's why we need God's word, and we need to affirm that God's word is good and his design is good, and we need to follow that design. Amen. God's design is good, but because of sin, we no longer see it as good. And what's more, we no longer have the ability to realize it on our own. Now, I know you're saying right now, aren't you a wonderful ray of sunshine here? But here's the great thing about Genesis 3. Not only does Genesis 3 show us what the problem is, it also gives us the solution. It also provides the solution. You see, in the midst of the most tragic chapter of any book that's ever been written, God makes a promise. As Adam and Eve sit there in the devastation of their own making, God comes along and he tells them that through them, he is going to bring someone who will come and undo all that sin and Satan have done. He's going to send a savior, that, that one of their offspring is going to be a savior, a savior who is going to rid us 
of Satan and sin forever. Now, if you've been around here for any length of time, you probably know that part of the story. In fact, I just talked about it two weeks ago. But here's a part of the story that that maybe you're not all that familiar with. In verse 20 of chapter 3, we're told that Adam names his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Just think about this for a second. You've got, you got to follow along. At the beginning of chapter 3, Adam and Eve's marriage has fallen apart. As soon as sin enters into the world, what are they doing? They're just going at through each other. They are. They're accusing one another. They're pointing fingers. They are broken people. They have a broken marriage, and it looks like it's done. It looks like it's over. They're running. They're high. I mean, it just is a mess. It is a mess. Here's one of the great things. If, if you've been there, maybe you are there today, there's hope. And there's hope because God showed them grace. God shows them grace. And what do they do with God's grace? Well, they have a choice. We all have a choice today, by the way. God's shown all of us grace, and we have a choice what we're going to do with that grace. Are we going to respond to it in faith, or are we going to walk away with, from it? What do Adam and Eve choose to do? They choose to respond to God's grace with faith. They believe, they hear God's promise, and what do they do? Adam names his wife, says, you're going to be Eve. She takes the name, and they believe in that moment that God is going to begin, he is going to send that Savior. And so they begin to put their marriage back together, and they begin to put back the broken world that they've created. And then a little while longer, they have a son, and his name is Seth. And you know who Seth becomes? He becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. The Savior who would come. The Savior who, on the cross, was struck by Satan. But who, in being struck by Satan, crushed his head. For all time. What does that mean for us? Here's what it means for us. God has shown us grace as well, friends. The same grace that he showed Adam and Eve, he has shown to us. The thing about it is, is that we can actually see it much better than they could, right? They can only see it vaguely, picture in the future. They only had God's word to go on. Do you know what we have to go on? We can look back and we can see that Savior coming. We can see that Savior living. We can see that Savior dying. And most of all, we can see that Savior coming back to life again. And because he's alive, we know that one day he is going to come to return us to the garden state. And so my call to you today is to look to that in faith, to believe what God has done for you, that he has shown you grace, and to use that and the power that comes from it to pursue God's design with your wife, with your husband, so that your marriage can flourish and that you can bless the world and bring glory to God. Maybe you're here today and you're saying, I don't know if I can trust God's good design. How how do I know that I can trust it? You can know that you you can trust it because he was willing to send his son to die in your place. And if he was willing to do that for you, don't you think you can trust that his plan and his design for marriage and sexuality and everything is the way to go? I encourage you to do so. Let's pray.